This is the second broadcast of Vermont Credit Unions On Air, a podcast from the Association of Vermont Credit Unions. I'm Joe Bergeron, President of the Association. With me are Adam Nekrasen and Jessica Oski, members of our association's advocacy team and lobbyists in the Vermont State House. We're recording this podcast on November 9th, just one day following one of the most memorable general elections in most of our lifetimes. There will have been two days of media analysis of state and federal election results by the time you're listening to this. But, at least here in Vermont, nobody else is talking about our state's election results and its effect on the 21 credit unions in the state and their 350,000 members. So, that's going to be our focus. Welcome to both of you, Adam and Jessica. Thank you. Thanks. Before we get to state-level analysis, there's a few quick federal observations that uh, are worth mentioning. First, uh, today analysts are saying that the Donald Trump presidency will likely change the regulatory environment for credit unions. Trump has been a vocal critic of the Dodd-Frank Act, has vowed to ease regulatory burdens for financial institutions through reeling in the CFPB, and has referenced reinstating the Glass-Steagall Act. In the U.S. Senate, Democrats gained one seat, but Republicans still control the chamber. Vermont Senator Leahy continues to have the most seniority, holds considerable power in his party, and is a strong supporter of credit unions. Bernie Sanders' Senate seat wasn't up for election, but it'll be interesting to see what changes for him stemming from the nationwide following he's gathered from the presidential campaign trail. Bernie, of course, is a strong credit union supporter. And Vermont's lone member of the U.S. House, Peter Welch, easily won re-election with 90% of the vote. As expected, Republicans still have a firm majority in the House. Welch also has been supportive of credits on most issues. And it's worth noting that our association and CUNA's federal uh, PAC provided financial support to both Leahy and Welch in this election cycle. Okay, so on to our Vermont results analysis. Let's get started with you, Adam. Give us a high-level overview of the results that should be of interest to credit union officials and members. Okay, let's start at the highest level for Vermont, which is um, that almost regardless of who won, Phil Scott won the office for governor, but heading into this election, this was a big year of change. We are going to have a new governor, a new lieutenant governor, a new speaker, a new Senate president, new committee chairs, um, a new Supreme Court justice. This is a, a the biggest changeover in leadership in 50 years in Vermont, and um, the elections brought um, a new crew of people to the top of state government. Um, there's there's lots we can talk about on that, and particularly as it relates to credit unions. Um, but the the most significant um, point is that it's a big reset in Vermont with regard to state policy leadership and um, people at the helm. And maybe, Jessica, you could run through a little bit of the details in the election results, and, and then we can talk some about that. Sure. As uh, most of you probably heard by now, Phil Scott won pretty handily his seat over Sue Minter with a 52% to 43% uh, margin of victory. Um, although... Phil Scott won the governor's race, Republicans in other contests did not fare quite as well. The Progressive Party candidate, David Zuckerman, easily beat Republican Randy Brock in the lieutenant governor's contest. And this is really the first time that a progressive candidate has won a statewide office running only as a progressive. Uh, Doug Hoffer has also run, but he's run as a Democrat progressive. Uh, Democrat and rising star T.J. Denovan trounced his Republican rival, Deb Bucknam, 63% to 28%. And in other statewide 
contests, the incumbent Democrats for Secretary of State, Auditor, and Treasurer all easily won re-elections. In addition, the Democrats retained a majority, a supermajority, in the state Senate. There's 22 Democrats and seven Republicans and one progressive, and a very strong majority, although, um, as Adam will discuss later, it's not a veto-proof majority in the House. There will be 84 Democrats, 52 Republicans, seven progressives, and seven independents. So one of the uh, big lessons of election night in Vermont is that Vermonters have chosen divided government, and we will have a um, real strong democratically controlled legislature and uh, self-avowed, moderate, centrist Republican governor with a lieutenant governor in the uh, involved who's super progressive and and a leader on front edge issues. We're, we're just back from being at Phil Scott's uh, first press conference as governor-elect, uh, his transition press conference, and um, he really stayed true to his campaign themes of a, a, a focus on um, hiring a new administration and uh, focusing first on the state budget and running all um, issues in his mind through how they'll impact the economy. Um, and so we, we know he's going to be bringing um, that to Montpelier in the coming several years um, and um, but let's make a few notes for credit unions here that are significant right up front which is two things one Phil Scott uh, is a long and well-established public official as a longtime lieutenant governor he's also a, a Northfield Savings Bank incorporator so he's got a long history of being a um, member of the bank community leadership. And his race car has sponsorship by the Northfield Savings Bank. That's right. He's a very successful race car driver at Thunder Road, and uh, one of his top sponsors was the bank. You know, his history as a cre on credit union issues is as a state senator, he voted against the Modernization Act 10 years ago. Um, having said that, you know, he has um, visited with the credit unions often when they come to the state house and, and seems to have a pretty... Uh, grounded view of our value in the marketplace and how we're different. So uh, we're not anticipating a great challenge to the credit union community, but it's certainly somebody um, that you know we're going to have to um, really work with to showcase our credit union values. Also, as far as credit union supporters go, the legislature um, has a number of leaders who are growing into new roles who we consider to be credit union champions. Uh, Senator Tim Ash is the, currently the chair of the finance committee and um, is a, uh, you know, he, he's a credit union member and really understands the cooperative business corporate structure and movement and is a strong supporter. Um, number of other lawmakers that are long and well known as credit union supporters were reelected or uh, see their roles growing in the state house representative david sharp um, uh, warren kitzmiller senator ann cummings senator chris pearson senator mark mcdonald so um, credit unions are um, well understood by leaders of the legislature and um, we're likely going to see um, 
our core values um, held true in a number of key committees in the legislature. Uh, there was one issue important to credit unions, um, sort of a secondarily, um, came up secondarily during the, during the campaign. And uh, Phil Scott's challenger, Sue Minter, proposed a significant increase in the bank franchise tax on large out-of-state banks to fund a college scholarship program. With that proposal now off the table because she was not successful, it's unlikely that a defensive campaign from the bankers to tax the credit unions um, will, it's unlikely that that will be on the table this session as well. However, uh, the governor will be proposing a budget to the legislature, and if it includes deep cuts in social programs that are important to the legislature, uh, they could look to that bank franchise tax for revenue, and um, we would have to contend with a likely aggressive response by the Bankers Association. That's right, and uh, so zooming out from that a little bit, Jessica's right that um, at at the heart of the fiscal dialogue in Montpelier is a constant conversation about the role of taxation on financial institutions and um, how credit unions are different and, and don't belong in that conversation. But let's talk a little bit about what we expect for the um, coming legislative session. We have all these new leaders, we have a new governor, and um, what typically happens is, so Phil Scott right now is trying to hire an administration. He's, he's busily um, looking for resumes and trying to find new, fresh leaders to come to Montpelier and help him head his cabinet and his agencies. Um, he's also been very clear that his first focus will be on the state budget and uh, he's got to deliver a budget to the legislature in January. And then in the first year of the biennium, what typically happens is a, a new governor who ran on a set agenda, and in this case, Phil Scott won with a really strong margin, carries something of a mandate from voters that his agenda belongs the center of attention in the General Assembly. And so in the first year of a new administration, what we anticipate is that all the proposals he talked about during the campaign will be converted into legislative proposals put on the table and, and really heavily vetted in the legislative process. Um, and that's the General Assembly will kind of give due deference to voters sending Phil Scott to the governor's office and, and expect legislators to um, take a hard look at those proposals. Uh, among them are um, a lot of proposals about growing the economy and that's something of interest to credit union members and, and credit union leaders because we're certainly in the financial services business and um, want small business and the economy to grow. So this is something of a welcome focus from my perspective for the credit union movement that Governor-elect Scott is really excited about trying to grow the state's economy. Um, we down the road will likely see some partisanship emerge in Montpelier, but it, it, it won't be where they start right, right off in January. Um, while there's a strong crew of liberal lawmakers in the legislature, they certainly, um, we would anticipate, will look to work with Governor Scott um, for the beginning of his term. 
Um, finally, uh, the with all the turnover in Montpelier, we're also going to be having a new speaker and a new leadership in the House and the Senate, which would be the new, a new speaker and a new pro tem. Um, the last year, the pro tem John Campbell, he resigned um, or didn't run for re-election, and the House Speaker Shap Smith uh, ran unsuccessfully for Lieutenant Governor in the primary, and he lost. Um, so, at the in the first, in the next few weeks, those the leadership in the House and Senate will begin to take shape, um, and that could affect committee chairs and committee assignments that will be important to the credit unions. Um, there could be new members on Senate Finance and on House Commerce, and there could be new leadership in those committees as well. So can you talk for a second about uh, that committee appointment process that you just referenced? Um, you know, I know there's there's probably a lot that goes on behind the scenes, you know, well before the legislature, legislature convenes, um, but come January, um, just for everyone listening, what's the process that everyone goes through to assign, you know, each legislator to different committees and who the chairs are? Um, there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes. The In the first few days of the legislature, there are no committee assignments. It usually takes two or three days. Um, there's first an, a formal election for speaker in the House, and a couple days after that, the committee assignments are announced, including the chairs, and then the committees will officially get seated. So for the first couple days, there's there's no committee activity, and then once the committees are seated, because this is the, a new biennium, uh, there's a lot of orientation that goes on for the first couple weeks. Um, similar process in the House, the House, the Senate, or excuse me, in the Senate, the Senate leadership will likely be determined prior to the opening of the session. Um, but again, the Senate uh, Senate committees and Senate chairs won't be publicly announced until the first week of the session. Yeah, interestingly, in the Senate, there's actually a group of three senators, leaders, um, who are called the Committee on Committees, and, and they spend a bunch of time behind closed doors interviewing all 30 senators to um, figure out what they think is the right package of talent and seniority and diversity of interest to put on particular committees, and it's something of a big unveiling at the end of the first week of the legislative session when these committee assignments come out. Um, we would, um, as we've noted at the top of the podcast, we anticipate a, a lot of change, and uh, there will be some real shuffling at, at the helm of key committees, particularly Senate Finance, for example, where credit union issues often uh, are centered. Um, and in the House, we know that um, you know there'll be a, a, a big changeover as well in things like the Commerce Committee and the Ways and Means Committee. This is all um, not unexpected, but it really um, gives lawmakers a chance to bring a fresh look at a lot of issues, in, including things like the financial services landscape and ways to encourage um, you know more lending, more borrowing, more uh, economic development, more small business opportunity. And, and with the Phil Scott you know, agenda, we anticipate that to be a real center of attention. And it also gives um, interest groups like AVCU the opportunity to um, make a pitch and uh, explain who they are and educate the committees 
uh, about the issues, about what credit unions do and the issues that are important to them. You know, you both mentioned about, uh, or re referenced rather, um, <clears throat> the uh, bank tax that was uh, proposed by Sue Minter uh, to pay for education efforts and whatnot. And that reminds me that one of the things that's come up, uh, I don't know if it's been every year lately, but uh, frequently anyway, has been the request from the legislature to the administration to present them with a list of the, I don't know if it's 300 or so tax expenditures to review every year and scrutinize. Um, and so credit union uh, treat tax treatment is, is on that list as an expenditure by a government speak. So you think that's going to come up again this year? Well, in, in Phil Scott's uh, economic development plan, one of his plans, he does make reference to um, ta tax structure reform and the Blue Ribbon Tax Commission report, which that report... Um, encourage the legislature to look closely at expenditures and look at expenditures more like they look at appropriations um, and examine them on a regular basis, which the legislature has been doing. Um, so it's possible that it could come up again. We've been pretty successful in the past and we'll work hard, we'll continue to work hard uh, to differentiate the credit union tax status um, as not a an expenditure, but more of an exemption um, based on corporate structure. Or what I articulate as the non-application of right. a tax because we do not have any right. outside owners that we're paying corporate profits to. Um, Joe, you're right, it's a, a constant conversation. The state has generally stated about a $5 billion budget, and there's a sense that there's on the magnitude of a billion dollars in foregone revenue that never comes in through tax expenditures. You know, we're not fit in that conversation, but nevertheless, we are lumped in there. Um, and candidly, for the credit union movement, it's a continuing opportunity to articulate our um, value proposition and how we are different than um, banks and other financial institutions and how the cooperative movement um, is nonprofit, democratically, democratically controlled and member-owned. And so it's a constant conversation, the tax expenditure conversation, and an, uh, an exciting opportunity to talk about the credit union movement that, that we regularly appreciate. Um, shifting gears a second, uh, new lieutenant governor in uh, Zuckerman, um, strong credit union supporter, right? Um, we, as a credit union um, interest group, we, we've never had uh, a whole lot of interaction with the lieutenant governor's office. Um, but I'm just wondering, credit unions aside specifically, if you think um, with a new face in there uh, and a new party, if um, the role is going to change at all, uh, if there's going to be more involvement or, or less or what? Yes. Uh Governor Zuckerman, which is actually interesting how you address the lieutenant governor, you know, so Lieutenant Governor Zuckerman um, is an activist, and this is different. And this will be the first time, this is the highest office where uh, an activist-oriented leader has, has, has achieved. And, um, you know, Governor Zuckerman's gonna have to redefine the role and it will take him some time, um, likely, to 
you know, find his footing in this regard. But he um, is likely to, you know, push a, a progressive agenda, largely in a grassroots movement-oriented way. You know, we anticipate he'll work outside the state house a fair amount. I mean, his official duty is to preside over the proceedings of the Senate and to cast a tie-breaking vote, of which um, there are some each year. Uh, but um, he's not a member of the Senate and and is not a, a a committee chair or someone who can set the legislative agenda. He's not a decider. He's not a decider, <laughs> but he is an activist and that will be very different and take some time for Vermont to adjust to because he will bring limelight wherever he goes and a crowd of activists who are uh, supportive of his change agenda during the campaign he said on many occasions that his goal is to bring more people more regular people into the legislative and the democratic process so to the extent that um, those real regular people are credit union people or credit unions um, there is a chance that there could be more interaction between the lieutenant governor and the credit union movement great um, it's not legislative per se, but more administrative. But you know, we talked early on about committee appointments in the process and whatnot. Um, but there's also administrative appointments uh, that that get made too. Um, and this year, or in the summer of 2016, we had the commissioner of the Department of Financial Regulation, which touches credit unions, state and federal, um, leave office. Um, and have an interim uh, commissioner that's functioning there now. So what do you think is going to happen there with appointments with a Republican governor coming in? Today at the press conference, the governor um, was asked whether he'll be keeping on any of the Shumlin administration um, commissioners. And he said he would welcome the, them to apply for their jobs if it's something that they want to continue. Um, so it, there's a chance that um, Commissioner Pichek, Pichek yeah. um, could apply for his job again, or if there are other um, people listening to this podcast or other folks that you know of that would be good candidates for either the Commissioner of Financial Regulation or the Deputy Commissioner for Banking, um, Financial Services, uh, they should be encouraged to send their resumes and letters of interest into the transition office. Sure. My, uh, you know, Governor-elect Scott appointed Tim Hayward, uh, the chief of staff under Jim Douglas, as the head of his transition team, so meaning the chief hiring officer in a temporary volunteer role. Um, and uh, for the credit union movement, I, I think it's I'm going to predict we'll probably see a new commissioner of the Department of Financial Regulation, and um, the tradition of the deputy commissioner holding over has some real good potential. Um, but it, it's likely that we'll see change at the helm of that department. And for those of you that may be new to government, Tim Hayward was for a long time the executive director of the Vermont Banking Association, so he does have a banking background. Right. And he was also in the uh, Douglas administration for a while. Right. He, right? he was the Secretary. Douglas administration. Yeah. Uh, no, chief of, oh, chief chief of, of staff. staff. Yeah. 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 
Well, you know, the discussion makes me think of Mike Pichek because um, he was heavily involved or directly involved with all the EB-5-related activity surrounding JPEG and whatnot, right? He was, and he was credited with being one of the um, voices that kind of broke that open. Right. And um, DFR really is the agency in state government that's credited with, um, you know, bringing that whole thing into greater focus for enforcement. It's probably also worth mentioning um, that we're going to have a new attorney general, T.J. Donovan, um, after 20 years with. Bill Sorrell as the AG. Um, TJ is going to bring it a, a new style to the office of AG. And um, while most of your regulation comes from Department of Financial Regulation, there are areas um, of your daily life that do intersect with the Attorney General's office. Um, we think that this is going to be an activist Attorney General, um, but also, you know, fair and open um, and accessible. Well, I was thinking about that change, too, before you brought it up. And, um, you know, it, it occurs to me that a lot of what we uh, encounter in the State House that we're having to react to legislation-wise is all consumer protection-related legislation that is either, I don't know if originated is the right word, but, but you know, put forth or, or at least encouraged by the AG's office. Uh, so we run into the AG's office a lot on a lot of legislation that we have to touch and that you have to, the two of you have to deal with every day for us. Um, and so, you know, that was making, making me wonder, you know, is, are we going to see that pattern kind of continue or, you know, less consumer protection effort? But from what you're saying, Jessica, it sounds like we may see more coming our way. <laughs> Certainly, um, TJ's interest is in criminal justice reform. Uh, we haven't really... We don't have much experience with him on on um, consumer protection issues, but I do expect that that will be an area um, that he'll pay some special attention to. That's right. He's something of a rising star in, in Vermont's political landscape and um, is, as Jessica said, going to be an activist AG. And uh, we will see more consumer protection proposals coming out of his office, the uh, unknowable and unknown yet. But he certainly is somebody that's kind of made his political mark as, um, you know, teaming up with the little guy on the street, uh, you know, who needs consumer protection or, you know, a fair shake in, in, inside government. And, you know, there's, it'd be, it's unlikely that he's going to let up with that agenda. All right. Well, thank you both for... Uh all of your time here and shedding some light on what Credians can expect to see in the 2017 Vermont legislature that starts in, what, about eight weeks, I think it is? It's going so to it's come up quick. Right around the corner. January 3rd. Um, anything else we've left out that we need to touch on, or have we covered enough? No, this was fun. Invite us back for another. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, will do. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. We hope you, everyone found this discussion informative. Thanks very much to uh, Adam and Jessica for uh, filling us in here uh, in this little podcast. As we record more Vermont Credit on-air episodes, we'll archive them on our podcast channel at soundcloud.com slash vtcreditunions. If you have ideas for a podcast on something you'd like to hear about, send it to podcasts with an S at vermontcreditunions.coop. 
Until our next podcast, this is Joe Bergeron of the Association of My Credit Unions, thanking you for listening. <laughs>